0: This episode is dedicated to a Deep Cuts listener named Vincent Kukawa, who we recently learned, sadly, passed away. He was a great and positive force in our Facebook group. He was a joy to interact with on the few occasions that I got to talk to him. And he was an OG listener of the show from the very beginning. We're deeply grateful to anybody who chooses to invite us into their lives and add our show to their daily routine. And because of that, we will always be grateful to Vincent and all of you for choosing to listen to the show. And he will be greatly missed. I'm Dave Baker. And I'm Spandrew Spice. Welcome
1: to Deep Cuts, the podcast where we pick a topic and walk you through the ins, the outs, and the nitty gritty so you can appear like an interesting and idiosyncratic person at your next forced social function. Today's topic is Mike Diana. Who is Mike Diana? Well, he's a cartoonist, zinester, and illustrator who, in the 1990s, published a book called Boiled Angel. Diana's name might not ring a bell as being one of the most famous comic artists of all time. However, he is the only artist in US history to be the center of a legal shitstorm, have a high profile trial, become convicted of obscenity, and then legally barred from drawing. one. It's an angel. But it's boiled. Finding a means of personal expression seems to be the true North Star for many Americans. Life is hard. Living is hard. And working is hard. And at the end of the day, you hunger for a means by which to shriek into the void, I was here. I mattered. By the end of the 20th century, that impulse had shifted from a generation in pursuit of writing the great American novel into the desire to just make art, any type of art. It had become something of a generational creed. People from all across the nation were constantly looking for a means by which to express themselves, a means of fighting back against the empty void of nothingness that so many of us struggle with. And no one summarizes that struggle better than Mike Diana. Diana was born in 1969 in New York City. He, his younger sister, and his younger brother were all baptized Catholic. The themes and icons of Catholicism would show up in many of his comics, but we'll get to that in a minute. As a child, his mother placed him in an after-school art program where he discovered a deep love of drawing. He wasn't always the most talented or skilled kid in these classes, but he had a solemn determination that couldn't be overlooked. A quiet child by nature, Diana took the act of drawing like a fish to water. It's practically all he ever wanted to do. In 1979, when he was just nine years old, Diana and his family moved from New York to Largo, Florida. Yes, this story happens in Florida. It's really a story that can only happen in Florida. Unfortunately, Diana struggled in school after the move. A burgeoning classic Gen Xer Diana appeared to be laser targeted on being a burnout. Except for art classes, he always got A's in art classes. Diana began writing comics in earnest while in high school. His early works were highly influenced by Topps' ugly stickers, wacky packages, and creature feature trading cards. As he started self-publishing comics, his work was very influenced by Basil Wolverton, Swamp Thing, and Heavy Metal comics. Mike Diana always had an unconventional way of looking at the world. He was always obsessed with the macabre, the offensive, and the strange. He also found the bizarre in everyday elements that most people took for granted. Diana and his family would go to church every Sunday. Most people would look at the crucifix and find existential peace in Christ's sacrifice. Diana, well, he was just shocked and disturbed by it. He left the church around the age of 16. The negative feelings that he felt towards the church would be the driving force of his artwork as a young person. Many of his comics depict anti-religious and sacrilegious themes.
0: Yeah, and the and the and the funny thing is as we start to get into this episode before we sort of get to the main event, uh you know, spoiler alert, but I think you pretty much know that this is the case. This story is about somebody who has been uh who was persecuted and arrested and you know, Nearly put in prison for a massive amount of time for uh, drawing comics that, that people deemed obscene, and the ironic thing is, is that um, in reality, the, Mike Diana was like the wokest fucking nine year old kid in the nineties of all time. Because the thing is, is that he he had heard about this the, 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 this concept that all these Catholic priests were like getting away with sexually abusing young kids. And whenever they were caught, they were just like shuffled to a different church in some other state or possibly country. And he was deeply disturbed by this fact that this was happening. And much of his comic output was inspired by how disturbing he found it that these horrible people were able to like get away with these awful crimes against children under the guise of, Religion and that the church protected them. So his comics, while obviously very over-the-top and graphic and approaching these subjects in an extremely uh, grotesque way, he was ostensibly commenting on and criticizing the exact things that these people that were coming after him should have agreed on. He just chose to do it, chose to present it in a way that was uh unpalatable for them but uh but it 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 bears mentioning that most of his comic output was just basically it was it was basically inspired by him as a child just being a, a disgusted by the fact that all these all this sexual abuse was allowed to go on in the catholic church
1: uh so we've got some uh some covers here of mike diana mike diana's illustrations um Oh boy. Uh, we've got some we got some covers here of Mike Diana's illustrations and some comics. Um, before we get too deep into the uh, the history of Mr. Diana, uh, Spandrew, you wanna you wanna try and describe <laughs>
0: some of these bad boys, so the uh, so the audience at home can kind of picture. This can be one of the more extreme uh, descriptions. Um, gonna gonna have to flex my muscles on this one. Um, so yeah, so the, fir- the first image is the cover to Boiled Angel. Uh, it's like, a, I guess it's a collection of the first four uh, issues of Boiled Angel. So it's a full color cover. I don't know if this... Is, oh, it's from 2017. So this is kind of like uh, a, a relatively recent collection of these books. And it is an angel a giant angel in a very classical sense just like a a humanoid male angel with wings completely naked um, his arms and his feet are cut off at the bicep and at the ankle and there's just like gore kind of hanging out of these nubs where his where he's uh you know cut off his limbs to file a insurance uh uh, an insurance claim to make some money. And uh, he's got a huge erect penis that is ejaculating out a cloud of jizz just into the air. And then he's there's a bunch of demons, little little tiny demons, that are crawling all over him. And they're just like little classic looking demons. They've got just like horns and pointy noses. And they're naked, and they all have erect penises, and one of them is carrying a bloody drill. One of them is carrying a bloody scythe, so they've obviously cut off his arms and feet. And uh, they all have erect penises, and they're all just jerking off and jizzing all over the angel. And then two of them are, like, hanging from the angel's halo and then just, like, splooging on his forehead. Oh, it's worse than
1: sploothing on his forehead. The little demons have carved
0: holes. I didn't even realize that. you. I, I just, I didn't notice that. Yeah, the drill was because they drilled holes in his head and the little demons that are hanging off of his halo are fucking the holes in his head. I, I, I didn't even realize that was what was happening. It's <laughs> intense, man. It's intense. Yeah, and then, Funny enough, this like actual older uh, cover like of one of the issues that was drawn in 89 is actually a little t- tamer than that. And uh, it's just Boiled Angel. I don't know what issue this is. It doesn't say. And it's some kind of person with like a just a evil look on their face. And they've got a, a severed head that they're dunking into a cauldron of some kind of liquid i'm assuming they're boiling and boiling angels and then there's a bunch of other severed heads hanging on the wall and then there's a person tied up watching obviously they're going to be the next person to be beheaded and have it have their head boiled
1: and then the below that there's a covered a boiled angel number seven where it's bam bam from or is that pebbles which, which which is the Pebbles? Bam Bam is the is the boy, right? Bam Bam is the boy. So it's Pebbles from Flintstones as a corpse, and she's her genitals and and breasts are exposed, and she's dead, and there's holes in her face and cranium that a giant weird penis monster is inserting itself into. And she's holding a razor blade that she's just slit her wrist with, I think. Yeah. And she's missing a leg. She also, there's a, a leg that's been cut off.
0: Um. Yeah. It's that kind of like iterative art that you do when you're younger and maybe even adults, some adults do this. But this thing where you kind of just, instead of like starting from like, oh, like I have this character in mind or I have this this illustration that I'm going to kind of map out and kind of uh, build a, a layout and then draw, you just kind of start and then you just draw and add on and add on. And you're just trying to basically like one up yourself with everything that you add. So you're just getting increasingly more over the top and gross. And it almost comes out like this sort of stream of consciousness tapestry um, which I think I think a lot of kids just have experience with with drawing stuff like that where you don't understand that you can like plan out an idea so instead you just kind of like start one line at a time and your drawing ends up just kind of being this weird fucking fucked up tapestry where you're just trying to get weirder and weirder with it as you go along
1: it's uh, you know it's very it feels like something you'd find on the back of a notebook in high school um and most of his work has that appeal. It's, you know, like his drawing ability is fairly crude um, and his and it's like expressly so, you know, he's very like, he's going for an aesthetic that is raw and emotional
0: and DIY and kind of punk. It's like Keith Haring graffitiing the inside of Harvey Weinstein's mind. <laughs> oh my God. It's uh, honestly, there's, You're not that wrong. There's just as
1: much non-consensual sex and, like, weird baby stuff and murder. I I didn't say it for no reason. So, you know, we've got some comics pages here, and they're basically the same. You know, like, this is a comics page called Attack of the Giant Killer Sperm that Diana made uh, after some of the stuff that we're going to talk about. And then uh, there's another page here for, for a story called Suffer the Innocent. Which is kind of a his personal uh, version, or, or him him chronicling the events of the uh, stuff that we're gonna read, or you know we're gonna we're gonna discuss
0: here today. What what are you what do you? I mean, aside from because I'm sure at some point we'll talk about just like how we feel about this these comics generally, but aside from just the grotesque nature of them and this the actual sort of content of them. Like what? What are your thoughts on Mike Diana's art, his illustrations?
1: Um, I think when I was younger, I liked it more, um, because it was such a part of that. Because it was, it was such a part of. I think I think I liked it more when I was younger for multiple reasons. One because it was such a part of my kind of like discovering indie comics. Um, one of the first books that I really fell in love with. Uh, was this series self-published by two guys, Rick G, or, uh, Rick Spears and Rob G, um, called Teenagers from Mars. And it's a comic about this small town where comics, uh, become outlawed, and these two teenagers kind of go on the run, Bonnie and Clyde style, um, and they form an organization that's just the two of them called the Comic Book Liberation Front and they're being chased by local officials and there's shootouts and it all kind of has this inciting incident of the main character, Macon Blair, working at a not Walmart, getting into an argument with somebody because they say the comic that was, that was sold to their child is offensive and they get into this argument of pushing match ensues and um, in order to avoid assault charges they, the, and being sued, the company, not Walmart, uh, fires Macon. And it kind of starts this big spiral of kind of a, a taxi driver meets, you know, a pretty in pink coming of age story or, or, you know, 16 Candles or whatever. Uh, so it's, it's a mix of kind of... John Hughes. John Hughes. It's, it's like, you know, Teenagers from Mars is basically what if John Hughes and Martin Scorsese, Martin Scorsese's taxi driver, like, had a baby and it was a small town comic book, you know, vigilante book. Uh, and it blew my mind. It was, you know, it's like my one of my favorite comics ever. Um, I still wear the little button that Macon wears to his job that says, ask me about comic books on my jacket to this day. Um,
0: it's it's like one of my favorite comics ever. And then Rick, Rick Spears went on to write a book called The Auteur that's almost like the platonic ideal of what Boiled Angel kind of was supposed to be, where it's like, yeah, it's this totally. it's this satire of... Uh, American culture's obsession with hyper and sexual exploitation but like the art is just way better and it sort of builds to a more cohesive point yeah uh,
1: and um, in Teenagers from Mars mm. the, the main character Macon talks about Mike Diana and that's how I learned about him and so I tracked down a bunch of his mini comics and stuff during that time period and uh yeah, I, I really liked them at that time period in my life, more out of the like, fuck yeah, this guy's not letting anybody tell him what to do. I I don't really connect with the material or the I could connect with the drawing style. There's a lot of stuff that I like that's in air quotes amateurish or, you know, naive in its in its execution. Uh but yeah, it it kinda isn't really necessarily my bag but it doesn't have to be my bag for me to think that it should still fucking exist and you shouldn't go to
0: jail for it yeah for sure yeah i mean for yeah definitely for me it's not that it's like amateurish or whatever but there's just something about it that just is not appealing to me it's just like the the aesthetic of it i just it does i don't connect with it in the same way that like which i I think i want to talk about this a little bit at some point but in the same way that like Richard McCathlin, Richard McCaslin's comics are just very appealing to me aesthetically. And these just don't really hit that spot for me. And it's funny because they're kind of, they're similar in a lot of ways, which I kind of, I kind of want to talk about.
1: Yeah. I, I have lots to say about that. Let's, let's keep going for now. But yeah, don't, don't let me forget because we should definitely talk about that more. In 1987, during his senior year of high school, Diana started to take the idea of drawing comics seriously. So what did he do? He did what a lot of high schoolers do. He made comics about his teachers being murdered in horrendous ways. He distributed them around the high school, hoping that they would catch on, but they didn't. He also mailed them into multiple horror magazines in hopes that they would get published, but nothing happened there as well. Can you imagine being, like, this dude's fellow student? You're, like, fucking 15, 16, and that boiled angel shit starts showing up around school you'd like i don't know if it was the same in 87 but currently i would be like it's it's understandable while people why people were unnerved because i would immediately be like this dude is a mass shooter in the making
0: yeah i mean that's the, that's the thing about boiled angel is like if you haven't read it you are you're like legitimately not prepared for what it actually is like it it is, it goes there. Like no matter what you have in your mind and no matter how you much you prepare yourself of like, I've seen fucked up shit before. Like I watched fucking, I went to rotten.com in high school and watched fucking uh, someone get stabbed in the neck. Like I, I get it. Like, and then you, and then you read it and it will, it's going to be more intense than you are imagining it is. And it like, it, uh, it reminds me of, there's this one video and it's, It's just this video that's, that's been on the internet for years. It's, it's, it's maybe like at this point, like five, six, seven years old. And it's just a viral video that's gone around and I, it's just made its rounds over and over again. And it's, it's just like kid going super Saiyan, and it's this young kid. He's probably like 14 or something like that in the video. And he's like, just talking to the camera and he's just like, my name is such and such. And I'm, right here on camera. I'm going to attempt to go super saiyan. And then he starts going, like he, he like, and he keeps going and going and going. And every time you think he's done and he can't possibly scream louder, he screams louder. And every time he ups the ante, you're like, oh my God, I can't believe he's able to do that. And every time you watch the video, you remember and you're like, this was intense, but like, I I know how intense it gets. And every time you are surprised by how intense it gets. And the Boiled Angels reminds me of that. We're like, as you keep reading it, you're just like, oh my God, and it keeps getting worse. Like it's intense. It's fucking intense. Like anybody, whoever you knew in, in, in high school or elementary school, if even if it was you or if it was some other person, everybody knows that kid who drew really shocking artwork and made comics that were intentionally shocking. And they were just like gore and death and sex. And they were just trying to like freak people out and like, you know, push back against authority. None of that that you ever saw is as fucked up as boiled angel. Like he, he did it. He mastered the art of fucked up, overly grotesque teenager comics. Yeah. You might say that he's the Lord of the edge Lords. A hundred percent. Like I really like nothing can prepare you for how fucking intense these comics are. Like, he just keeps pushing it and pushing it and pushing it. And when you think it can't get any more fucked up, it gets more fucked up.
1: During this time, Diana, who lived with his father, would stay up all night drawing into the wee hours of the morning. He balanced this by working shifts at his father's convenience store in Largo, Florida. In 1988, Diana and his friend Robert, who was born in New York State, bonded over a mutual dislike of the Florida climate after Robert got a job at a local print shop, he convinced his boss to let them print 960 copies of a zine that they had made together, called H-V-U-Y-I-M. Later that year, Diana created a zine called Angel Fuck, which was named after a song by the Misfits from their iconic album, Static Age. He published three issues of this book. And here's where things kick into high gear. Diana would pivot into making a new title in the hopes of gaining actual traction and it would only in the exact opposite way that he had hoped for diana started publishing a new zine called boiled angel which continued his standard fare of making comics about cannibalism rape and murder he wanted to be an edgelord really badly only he had one problem he was about to succeed in shocking people to an
0: ungodly degree before we move on we just have to quickly just establish that like and I don't think this is even like an out-of-the-ordinary thing. Like, I think this is a trope, honestly. But Mike Diana, as a person, is just an incredibly even-keel, bland, monotonous person that you would never really expect to be making these comics. Like, in, in interviews, he's basically just like, um, yes, I am Mike Diana, and uh, I I enjoyed comics as a child, and I started making comics and I enjoy it. I enjoy the act of making like he's, he's just like he's just like an incredibly straight lace seeming person that you would never expect to draw this shit. Which I think as, as we get to the story, I think it almost kind of lends to the, the, the outrage and the, and the sort of like satanic panic thing, because it's like, He doesn't even seem like a freaky guy. So it's like, oh, like, they're hiding among us. This seemingly normal child is actually a a tool of Satan. He's got a fucking weird mullet, but it's, like, totally fashionable
1: from 1991. He's just like me.
0: But he's actually
1: Satan's right-hand man. In 1988, the then 19-year-old Diana started working at an elementary school as a janitor. He did this primarily because he could use the photocopy machine to print out photocopies of his zine for almost no money. He started selling subscriptions and amassed a small subscriber pool of about 300
0: people. The sad thing is, it's like because this is this ends up being his downfall, obviously, as we'll get to. But you got to love, You got to respect the grind, man. He's like, I got to I got to print these comics. I'm going to fucking work at this school as a janitor because i can get access to the printer. Like that's a, that's a that's a genius move. And also like 300 subs?
1: That's not nothing, man. That's like that's a that's a solid little print run
0: right there. 300 guaranteed sales. Fuck. He locked down manufacturing and he had a product that was very attention grabbing for reasons we've just gone over. So, you know, he had a, he had a good little setup here.
1: And also this is, bef- you know, in the days before like the internet where it was easy to kind of sell stuff to people, you know, he had like mail order subscriptions that he would offer, you know, it was like people had to literally send him money orders or checks him personally. It's not like you could just throw shit up on an Etsy store. As you might expect, Diana was fired from the school once they figured out that he was self-publishing a child murder zine on their machines which is so funny to me. (laughs) It's so funny to me that he was just like, I'm going to do this. I'm going to work here, take it on the chin, but it's all for the art, man. It's for my comics. And then one day, Mr. Globity Gloop comes in and goes, uh, baby cocaine. No, you're
0: done. Yeah. Yeah. And which is like pretty, pretty understandable, obviously like, like is it ultimately actually I mean, the it's it, it's understandable from a perspective of you're just you like even if he was even if he was printing the Bible to sell like you're using our comp, our schools like m- machine to like you're basically stealing massive amount of paper and ink from us like that's the only part that I really understand and then and then yeah it is concerning like from from optically it's like you're making a zine that's like this fucked up the proximity to children is obviously problematic even if you know ultimately it wouldn't have actually been that bad big of a deal he never showed the comic to any of the kids or whatever so you know can't can't knock the school for for firing him in 1991 a california law
1: enforcement officer came into possession of one of mike diana's comics and parts of the book the art style and the writing reminded him of the unsolved gainesville student murders which had been happening across Florida. Copies of Boiled Angel were found in the possession of a suspect in the case, which brought the title to the attention of the Federal Bureau of Investigations.
0: Let, let's, let's stop it right there before we move on to the next part of it, because in my mind, like, this is already just a bridge too far. Like, this is already, like, a fucked up totalitarian thought police scenario. That they just, they saw these comics, which I guess if the comics were like literally beat by beat reenacting murders in ways that only the police could be aware of, then like that would be cause for alarm. But just seeing a comic and then just thinking like, oh, this is very violent. Maybe this kid is a serial killer. is just, it's just insane to me that, that that could happen. And, and, you know, that the, they actually just passed a law in California where rap lyrics can no longer be used in criminal court cases as the sole piece of evidence. Because for years, criminal prosecutors have used rap lyrics as pieces of evidence in criminal cases against rappers and basically said like, oh, this person we're accusing of this crime. And in these rap lyrics, they say that they did something like this. So they're guilty. And that's just that just happens. And it's, it's happened up until recently when they just passed a law in California saying that you can't do that. That's fucking insane to me. Yeah, it, it's it doesn't. It
1: feels like it goes against everything our country in theory stands for. And yet uh, also doesn't. It also feels strangely uh, apropos
0: to me for some reason. Yeah, well, I mean, that's the thing is like, I, I, we'll we'll t- I think we'll talk more about this later, but the 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 adjacency of the people who wanted this person convicted based on these comics, and also that want rappers convicted of crimes based on the lyrics, the people who want those things to happen are also the same people who cry out against like uh, violations of free speech and like woke people trying to cancel everybody or whatever. And it's like, this is the same shit except for like in the case of getting canceled, people just like, don't like you on Twitter anymore. And you're trying to like put a dude in jail for making a comic. And you don't at all see the hypocrisy of that. It's also just terrifying, too, because, like,
1: on a- if you- if you were- let's say, you know, you're a police officer or a FBI investigation agent or whatever and you had, uh, you know, a couple crimes that were open, you know, you needed suspects, you could just, like, read a bunch of books and find stuff that was reminiscent to you know what I mean like murder mystery novelists like it's the same idea it's just like
0: just like oh my god James Patterson your mind works exactly like this serial killer
1: oh my god Agatha Christie totally did it from beyond the grave
0: J.B. Fletcher of murder she wrote you are the zodiac (laughs) yeah
1: yeah later that year A few days before Christmas, after Diana sent out a few copies of Boiled Angel No. 6, an FBI agent showed up at his mother's house. They showed Diana a copy of the issue and told him that he was a suspect in the Gainesville student murder case. They requested a blood sample from him for DNA analysis purposes. The results ruled out Diana as a suspect, and so the FBI forwarded their information to the Pinellas County Sheriff's Office in Florida to keep an eye on him. That is terrifying. Yeah, it's terrifying. They just showed up and were like, give us
0: your fucking blood, you piece of shit. We think you're a serial killer. They took a DNA sample and cleared him, fucking whoop-de-doo, based on a comic that just was violent, that was not, nothing in the comic was similar to the killings. It was just like a violent comic. And also
1: one of the other, and one of the other suspects had a copy of the comic.
0: Yeah, but I mean, I've killed countless people and I have several Dave Baker books. So, like, <laughs> by by that metric. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. I'm just out here fucking sticking and jiving, man. Just pokey, poke, stabbity,
0: stab. But it's like it, it reminds me of the, the, the thing that was talked about in one of the QAnon episodes where when the Pizzagate thing happened, there was all these people on social media all these all these conservative influencers and pundits and figures who are making this who are making this rhetorical argument that like if there's even a chance that there are children in the basement that could be freed it's worth investigating and that's a manipulative framing device because yeah if there's a chance then it would be worth investigating But considering that the Pizzagate thing was based off of literally nothing, it was just some person's idea, there was no actual evidence or reason or cause for suspecting that there was children in the basement other than just somebody saying it, considering that that being the fact, by that standard, we should just be searching everybody's basement in case they have children locked up. But also, you know, people are protected against unreasonable search and seizure. Well, yeah, 100%. But even even by the moral even by the moral reasoning that if there's even a chance we should check it out, it was based off of nothing but a made-up idea. So the idea that we should check it out just on the chance is insane. And so yeah, they took his DNA sample, which he said he didn't want to. They came into the door and they wanted to take his DNA and he was like, "No." And his mom made him because she was like, if you're innocent, then you have nothing to worry about. So just let, let, let them take it so they can leave us alone. But like, that's like negotiating with terrorists. Somebody shows up at your door and is like, give me your blood for no reason. Go fuck yourself.
1: Yeah, that's honestly, that's even creepier to me than. Then like the being cleared aspect of it is one thing. But basically being strong-armed into giving the fucking cops DNA that's now going to exist in their system and be run against a bunch of other fucking stuff that I don't fucking know, like, that's that's terrifying. Not that I'm a criminal or anything, but the idea of that is just really
0: off-putting to me. They have all this carte blanche to just, like, run you against all these different things and just catch you on stupid little bullshit that's not actually a big deal, but- Technically, if they want to get you on something, they can. Not a
1: fan. Later, after Diana had printed Boiled Angels 7 and 8, he received a total of 10 letters from an undercover police officer named Michael Flores. Flores was posing as a fellow artist who had just moved to Largo, Florida, from Fort Lauderdale, and he was interested in Diana's work, purportedly. Flores insisted in his letters that he was not a police officer. So Diana, believing him... Sent him copies of the books, thinking he would just made a new art friend. Remember, this is pre-internet, so finding weirdos who were into comics, especially the dark, fucked-up shit that Diana was making,
0: wasn't exactly easy. Hold on, we we gotta find that letter that that cop wrote him because it's it's uh it's quite the it's quite the read. So this this is the letter that was written to Mike Diana by the cop undercover, trying to <laughs> trying to sound like a counterculture burnout comics lover mike i'm tired of people fucking around with what i believe in i saw your boiled angel at a friends and it's everything i think of and believe please send me a copy of boiled angel and other flyers you uh, other flyers you can it's hard to find things to read because of people fucking with us here's a 3 dollar money order like the copy said to cover cost thanks mike whatever people are Fucking with us. And the, the, the part of it that's funny to me is the part where he's like, I saw Boiled Angel and it's everything that I think and believe. Like that's, that's narc language right there. Like Mike Diana, you fucked up. That's, that was some narc shit and you didn't catch it. You were too flattered by somebody being interested in your work and you, you, you put your, you let your guard down and you didn't notice that was blatant narc bullshit
1: this actually just recently happened to me like maybe two weeks ago or three weeks ago
0: oh yeah that's that's why you're doing this from a jail cell
1: (laughs) yeah uh no i i some so there's a there's an art scam going on right now um let's see if i can find the email so i got this email yes i found it all right so this guy emailed me and this is the email all right i got this uh it was a little while ago it was like two months ago i got this two months ago what do you think about this? I mean, I guess it's a little bit of a spoiler because I already said <laughs> this is. there's something fishy about it, but this is the email. The email is from a, somebody named David Keene. Project Inquiry. Good day. My name is David and I am an academic event organizer and I'm hearing
0: impaired.
1: I hope you treat me like any of your other customers and that my disability doesn't affect our dealings.
0: NARC bullshit. NARC bullshit.
1: I got your contact details online. I need the service of an artist or illustrator slash cartoonist to work on a project for an upcoming workshop. I'll give you the idea of what I need to be illustrated slash drawn, and you can get back to me with the price to get it done. I'll pay your fee up front if you want, uh, please get back to me with more details. Warm regards, David. So I got that and I was like, why would you open with don't be bigoted against me this feels weird like I'm not gonna I wouldn't have I don't care if you're hearing impaired I wouldn't have treated you different either way but the fact that you're like leading with a negative you know like expecting somebody to be shitty means you're gonna be a problem client and I don't want to have to deal with freelancing in a situation where I'm gonna have to be negotiating whatever that situation is so I just never replied to the email I was like this person's not going to pay me enough to deal with somebody who has a negative opening line like that. That's just setting the relationship up to be on the wrong foot. Would you have dealt with this? Would you have responded to this email?
0: No. I mean, I, I don't know if, I don't know if I would have thought about it in the way that you thought about it, but I would have landed on a similar thing of just like, this sounds weirdly specific. They're giving too many details in a cold email before that we've even like had it like a discussion. Like usually whenever you cold email somebody, you just do a short, simple, like, Hey, I was wondering if you'd be interested in working on this project, let me know your thoughts or whatever. You don't like lay out every detail of it before you have even gotten a response from them. So I would have, I would have, I would have just immediately thought this was weird. It would have, it would have come off to me like something weird. So I let
1: it go. Cause I was just like, I, whatever's going on there is too much for me to unpack. I don't want to have to deal with a problem client. I go with God, my friend. And, uh, two weeks or three weeks later on Twitter, a bunch of people start talking about this person. Different names to a bunch of their emails but it's the same form email. Every email is this, I hope you don't, I hope you don't treat me any different because I'm hearing impaired or whatever. Turns out he's running a scam or they, you know, whoever this group of people or person is, is they're running a scam where they're getting artists to give them their routing and bank account information and then, like, somehow, they're- I don't know if they're, like, bouncing payments in order to refund money to get the artist to send them money or something- they're- basically, they're stealing money from people is they're getting them to do this work and then they're, like, somehow reverse engineering their PayPal accounts to get refunds or something. I don't know what the specifics are, but they're taking money from people. And I was like, ah, I feel so vindicated for being like, you're a problem client. (laughs) And it wasn't even a problem client. It was an actual criminal.
0: (laughs) Yeah, and it's, and it's probably like, cause it's like, why do they start off with this thing about being hearing impaired? And it probably puts people off guard and makes them more likely psychologically to not think through the situation because they're like already like, Oh, I don't want to like offend this person or like, like it, it makes them aware of like, Oh, I don't want to, I don't want to like be mean to this person because they're like asking me, they're saying they have this disability and they're saying to like be nice to them or whatever. And then you're like more likely to not think logically about what you're doing because you're like on your guard, try not to like do something wrong. That's probably why they do that. I can't think of any other reason why they would start off like that. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And apparently it worked because I saw a lot of people about it, talking about it on Twitter about getting fucked over by this situation, which really sucks.
0: Good thing you're just a stone cold sociopath. (laughs) Good thing my
1: fucking heart is dead. Yeah. Mike Flores, the police officer in question, became obsessed with Diana. And can you guess where all this is leading? In 1992, the assistant state attorney general, Stuart Baggish, who just happened to come across these books sent Diana a certified letter that said that he was being charged with obscenity pursuant to Florida state statute
0: 847.011. If I got a letter from Stuart Baggish saying I was being arrested for obscenity, I'd be like, this is fucking fake.
1: Act two The Show. Diana was between a rock and a hard place. He wasn't a legal expert. He didn't know what was going on. He was terrified. Thankfully, news of his story had reached a nonprofit First Amendment organization called the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund. They provided him a lawyer, Luke Lirat, and paid all his legal fees.
0: I would put I would put my whole fucking life in the hands of Luke Lirat. That name, I would I would I would trust him implicitly. I'd be like, Daddy Lerot, get me out of this mess. (laughs) You're just like standing in jail with your mullet and your
1: 1992 flannel and your Nirvana shirt. And you're like, I don't know how to, I don't know how to do this. How how am I going to get out of this, Daddy Lerot? And Luke Lerot comes in and he goes, don't worry. Step one, don't make any more comics about babies being raped. And you're like, but, but I don't know how to do that. And then he goes, "Do you want your freedom?" And you go, "Yes."
0: And then he goes, "Don't make any more comics about babies being raped. It's a good it's a good first start. Just get that one out of the way. Just knock it out, you know, just nip it in the bud, as they say." And I think you're not out of the woods yet, but like you've 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 gotten like you've at least gotten out of the fire. You're like you've 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 stepped out of the campfire that you're laying in at that point. Before the
1: case fully went to trial, Leeward argued that Officer Flores' letters constituted entrapment in an attempt to get the case dismissed. However, that would not be how things panned out. The case was moved to Tampa where Diana and his legal team were hopeful that they'd be able to find a sympathetic jury and that if the case did go to trial, it would be a favorable outcome. Well, in March of 1994, it did go to trial. In Pinellas County Court. Before we move into the actual trial, let's talk a little bit about, like, A, how surreal this would be, B, how this was everywhere in the comics media at the time, like, the journal was doing a bunch of, uh, exposés about it and it was, you know, covered widely, uh, in other magazines of the time, um, and also it was covered on the, like, the national news had a bunch of stories about it and they, like, interviewed the the people involved and quickly as the as the trial started to spin up it became something of like a media circus
0: which is fucking crazy I've I've we've talked about this like off off the podcast before I feel like I've brought this up multiple times every time and and I I, I think maybe I don't I, I I think maybe you don't have this as much because you did kind of grow up in a very like religious environment and I mean where I grew up the, the town was religious, but I just didn't. I, I just, I don't think I was around as much like religious zealotry um, in my interpersonal life. So every time I am reminded that there are people who believe in the actual literal devil, that there's like an actual evil dude that is like lives underground and like fucking burns people with fire. And when I see people have, like, such shocked reactions and, like, pearl clutching to, like, violence and, and you know, explicit, like, comics or movies or whatever to the point where they say that it's, like, evil or satanic or it's corrupting people, I legitimately have, like, culture shock. Like, I cannot believe that there are actually people who really believe this st- stuff literally. And watching watching some of the footage from the time, of uh, news packets of the parent organizations that were talking about Boiled Angel and that were saying that this person should, like, go to jail and that they were, like, evil and spreading, like, corruption throughout the 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 world or whatever and they're like literally crying and just being like oh god it's so horrible there's he's why do we have to live with such horrible evil in this world it it's mind-blowing to me i cannot believe that there are adult human beings that care about this in this way that would like see a comic and be like, this is evil. This person needs to go to jail. That's insane to me. I like, I can't wrap my mind around it. Cause like earlier we were talking and I was like, this shit is fucking intense. Like this, these comics are fucked up. Like I can have a personal shock to something. I can even be revulsed by something. I can even find something disgusting. I can even be personally, Offended by something from a sensibility or aesthetical standpoint, but never does it like jump the line into like, this is actually evil. This person needs to be imprisoned. This needs to be destroyed. Like, I can't, e- my mind can't even go there.
1: Uh, yeah. I mean, I, uh, I get it, man. I get it. I mean, I, I don't want to, but yeah, I,
0: uh, I don't like it. I don't like it. But just seeing these people, it's like they're they're children. Like the way that they're acting is like children. Like the way that children like believe things literally and f- live in sort of like a magical, realistic world where they think that things are much more dramatic and bigger than they actually are. Like they're they're they act like literal children. Like it's fucking crazy to me. I've experienced many shades of it. That's all I'll say. Yeah. I mean, I've, I'm saying all this, but I've, I've burned many of your books. (laughs) I would love that.
1: My, my hope, my hope. I mean, it's not really my hope, but there's like a small part of me that's like, Ooh, I wonder if Forest Hills is going to get banned somewhere. I wonder if we're going to get banned.
0: Yeah. But I mean, for me, it's when my, the reason why I think that books should be banned is, is not because of like. Satanism or like gore or violence or sexuality or whatever. I just, I open up the first page of one of your books and I'm like, dear God, there's 40 dialogue bubbles on this. And then I just throw it into the fucking (laughs) flames. Yeah.
1: Sometimes that happens and sometimes there's none. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I just that. It goes, it goes on the, on the pile after that.
1: Stuart Bagish argued that Diana's work was obscene in a way that an easily available horror movie was
0: not. He argued that the movies portrayed violence in a gross way, but it does not portray sex in a patently offensive way.
1: He cited the 1973 US Supreme Court ruling, Miller v. California, which established much of the criteria in measuring obscenity in the States. According to Lirit, the jury was visibly disgusted by the examples of Boiled Angel that were made to be read in court
0: according to diana the jurors were asked what their idea of art was and one of them said (laughs) needlepoint it's just like i mean it's fucking unreal like if you want there's interviews with the with the lawyers the prosecutor lawyers and it's like you guys you guys are fucking shameless like what you you guys are fucking pieces of shit like they're 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 like they're reminiscing on the on the trial and they're like i knew from the moment i looked at the book i opened the first page that it was obscenity and spending more time with the book just made it worse and it's like yeah that's absolutely true so fucking what like they had they they sat there and they talked about like what their thoughts were on the book and their thought process and their reactions to reading the book. It's like nothing you've just said constitutes criminal charges. You're just talking about how much you personally didn't like something. Like you're fucking crazy. You're 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 f- literally insane. Bagish also called as a witness Tampa psychologist
1: Sidney Marin, who stated that one of questionable personality strengths could be aroused by the comic book. The prosecution also made the point to the jury that Diana had been a suspect in the Gainesville student murders, despite the fact that Danny Rawling had been caught and pled guilty to the case before the Diana trial had even started.
0: Yeah, that that's fucking circular reasoning. That, that, circul- that circular reasoning bullshit from Raising the Allosaur, where they said like, "Oh, well, they determine the age of the fossils by the age of the rock, and they determine the age of the rock by the age of the fossils." This is the fucking circular reasoning. Like, oh, you are you you're plausibly a criminal because you were accused of a murder that somebody arbitrarily accused you of because of the same comics that we are currently prosecuting you because of.
1: Bagish even went so far as to say that if Diana was not stopped there was a keen likelihood that he could evolve into a mass murderer.
0: Fucking thought thought police, thought crime. Thought crime, man. Thought crime. This is how Danny Rowling got started. Step one, you start with the drawings. Step two, you go onto the pictures. Step three is the movies. And step number four is you're into reality. You're creating these scenes in reality. These dudes are just, these dudes gotta have a boner for this shit. Like, that's the only explanation. These dudes are like secretly like into it and they're mad at this kid because he's expressing himself and he's expressing the things that they secretly want to do in real life and they're like there's no way that he couldn't want to do these things in real life because i want to do these things in real life i want to murder people and rape people so he has to also want to do these things and i'm mad that he gets to do them and i can't so you're going to jail you're going to jail baby diana
1: testified for over three hours during the trial to attempt to explain to the jury his perspective the defense attempted to enter into evidence multiple stacks of underground comics from the 1970s as reference to provide context for
0: diana's work but the judge would not allow it the judge is like no nah, I'm, I'm not looking at this trash it's the marvel method all the way for me <laughs> that's
1: the thing that was really interesting to me when give me I the silver age <laughs> it was really interesting to me that like if if he had been making movies people would be culturally aware of movies he they would understand what movies are and they would be able to evaluate that in conjunction with a shared lexicon
0: yeah it would just it would just be it'd be taken for granted like oh these these schlocky horror movies you 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 get it you know what they are
1: yeah and nobody understood how the genre of like edgelord underground comics in the, within the broader context of the medium of comics worked so it was this weird like compounded gutter medium that was being put on trial culturally and then that kind of cultural bias was being used as a wedge to like catapult these circular reasonings of obscenity child pornography you know and also the fact that he worked at a school like the, in, during the trial, they repeatedly brought up like he was making these things around children. It's really dangerous that he's doing these things around children.
0: Yeah, which is just it's another example of like you may have a point that that's an issue, but it but you but the your reaction to it and the thing you are accusing it of being is massively disproportionate to what it actually is. It's probably not great that he was making those comics at an elementary school. Probably worth firing him, not a criminal uh, event in any way, shape, or form, other than theft, I guess.
1: On March 29th, 1994, after a week-long trial, the jury found Mike Diana guilty after deliberating for only 90 minutes. He was the first artist ever to be convicted of obscenity in the United States. Judge Walter Fullerton ordered Diana be held in a jail for four days until sentencing without bail. This drew much criticism from places like the St. Petersburg Times
0: and Mother Jones. Fullerton explained, I felt incarceration in jail was part of the sentence, so why not begin? He learned some good lessons.
1: Though Baggish recommended Diana be incarcerated for two years, Fullerton sentenced Diana to three years of supervised probation, a $3,000 fine, and 1,248 hours of community service. He was also ordered to
0: avoid all contact with minors. This shit happened you you hear this and you're like, "Oh, this this happened this this happened in the 30s. This shit happened when we were alive. We were we were fucking we were watching Rugrats when this happened.
1: Fullerton also ordered Diana to follow a state supervised psychiatric evaluation and to take an ethics in journalism class. He was also sentenced to submit to unannounced warrantless searches of his personal papers by police and deputized probation officers, which would allow them to seize any drawings or writings. That's right. He was legally prohibited from drawing in the state of Florida. This is so crazy to me. This is insane that they straight up were just like, A, that they had such a low understanding of the comics medium that they sentenced him to an ethics in journalism class he's not he's not a journalist (laughs) that's like if you like got a speeding ticket and they were like you have to take a crocheting class now buddy yeah
0: just like he takes an ethics in journalism class and he's like all right well i just finished my ethics in journalism class um i am now very aware that plagiarizing another writer is not good um, I know that you have to double check your facts before you print something and that you don't want to, like, print misleading information. Um, Yeah, that's that's about it. I don't I don't know. I don't know what that had to do with what I did. But like, I'm not going to fucking plagiarize anybody. That's for sure. <laughs> I mean, this is this is this is fucking dystopian. Verhoeven's toupee, baby. Verhoeven's toupee. There's like there's like a scale, right? There's like there's dystopian and then there's like barbaric. And there's there's things that we find barbaric that are like this happened in the past and this is fucked up. Like you could never imagine that something that would happen in the 1800s would happen today Wh- you know witch hunts in the in the 1700s, people being burned at the stake for being for being accused of being witches. That's barbaric. And then there are things that are happening now. That feel like the beginnings of things to come, and those are and those are dystopian. And this is like, it's it's either somewhere in the middle or it's just firmly dystopian because it wasn't that long ago. We were we were kids when this happened, and it doesn't feel like that could be possible. Like I I, I just I can't believe this happened. They're literally just like, you are going to jail. ...for offending people with drawings. That's unreal. Like, I, I can't even, like, put into words how fucking bizarre and fucked up that is.
1: In complex circles, Mike Diana was a cause celeb for a few years, and then was slowly forgotten about. Today, he's not particularly well-regarded, as cultural tastes have moved away from the garish, rebellious nature of his work. After serving much of his sentence, he moved to New York where he could draw again since then he's been in and around the underground art world however it wasn't until 2020 26 years after his sentence that he was finally removed from probation in 2018 a documentary was released about him and his struggles directed by iconic horror film director frank Hennenlauter. spandrew i feel like we got a bunch of stuff to talk about that we were kind of hinting at over the course of it, one of which being Richard McCaslin and the parallels between the two of these guys and also how in some ways it feels like Richard McCaslin is what everybody was paranoid Mike Diana was going to turn into. If you're not familiar, we did an episode about a domestic terrorist and conspiracy theorist named Richard McCaslin who was obsessed with comic books in the uh, 1990s and 2000s, and he developed a real life superhero persona for himself, uh, called the Phantom Patriot, and he was a uh, Illuminati conspiracy theorist, and he was convinced that the Bohemian Grove, um, gentlemen's club was have you know per- per- uh, trafficking in human uh sacrifice, and so he went there to try and free the people and burned down bohemian grove he was arrested charged with uh i think he was charged with arson and i don't remember if he was charged with attempted murder or not but he was definitely charged with arson and put in prison for multiple years got out and made comics about both his superhero persona and his religiously fueled conspiracy theory drenched worldview and uh his comics are not similar in subject matter to Mike Diana, but they have a similar feeling of mania to
0: them. But even then they kind of do are, in a way are similar in subject matter. I I, I find that the most, the, the most fascinating thing that stuck out to me is realizing this connection. And the most, the most fascinating aspect of this is the intersectionality between the counterculturalism of what Mike Diana was doing, and the sort of like teen angst pushing back against um, religious authority, and then the hyper reactionary, ultra conservative conspiracism of Richard McCaslin's work and what he believed, because um, in many ways, like you read you you read Boiled Angel, and you know, it really is just Mike Diana leaning into, um, you know, I, I'm not going to say conspiracy theory because we have much evidence that this was, was and still goes on in the Catholic Church, this abuse of children that sort of swept under the rug and priests are protected and shuffled around and not punished and things are covered up. Um, definitely not a conspiracy theory, but it is sort of like this idea of like peering back the facade of the deep state and saying like, these are the things that are truly secretly going on in these big authority structures. And that's, it's like almost one-to-one with what um, Richard McCaslin did, except for his was just much more hyper-religious and then just like not even a percentage of grotesque and shocking. Um, But aside from that, they're very similar uh, in what they were attempting to do with with the work. And that's what I find so fascinating is that the difference between Mike Diana's comics, and which were accused of being satanic and evil and corruptive, and Richard McCaslin's work, which for a large percentage of the types of people who would have labeled Mike Diana as a Satanist evil uh, criminal. They might not have specifically agreed with Richard McCaslin on every single one of his bespoke ideas, but certainly would generally agree with the trajectory and thrust of his belief system. And it was really just the difference of how graphic Mike Diana's work is that makes them think that it's evil. Like, like, do do, do you, do you, do you see what I'm saying? Like, like it's this, it's the same shit, but just because it was so graphic, they were just like, it's like mixing up the presentation with the message in this weird way where it's like, he's saying things that you should agree with as this hyper reactionary person who inherently distrusts any large authority system. And yet you think he's like a tool of Satan because his work just doesn't aesthetically agree with you.
1: Yeah, I mean I think it's also interesting too the the kind of downward spiral that they both went through. You know, where I think it's it's interesting too that like Mike Diana obviously struggled with feeling alone and like an outsider and an alien and having this traumatic religious upbringing and uh you know, his relationships with his parents that maybe weren't so great. Uh, at various points in time, which is very similar to Richard McCaslin, but the key differenti- differentiating signpost is that Mike Diana, despite making comics about like angels doing cocaine off of God's dick and babies being boiled alive and dismemberment and child murder. He had friends, you know, like he had friends that kept him grounded in reality. And also he got out his inner angst through the comics, through you know his hyper offensive art,
0: yeah, he was like he was like one butterfly's the one flap of a butterfly's wing away from being a Richard McCaslin, which is so interesting because they wanted to put him in prison for doing his comics even though he never actually hurt anybody or did anything remotely threatening to any other person. And Richard McCaslin actually committed acts of violence and attempted violence. And he did go to jail. It's not like he like escaped persecution, but I don't, I don't think that anybody would look at his comics and be like, this person needs to be in jail for these comics. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And in some ways, it's the comics were like an outgrowth of his real world modus operandi, right? Like he was dressing up like superheroes as far back as the like 1980s, you know, like early 1980s. He was dressed up and going around his hometown as like some sort of cat themed character that I can't think of the name of now. Um, And then he also tried to make a character that was like a bulletproof guy that he starred in a- he was, like, gonna make a movie with one of his friends, like, his only friend, uh, and all that- basically, McCaslin struggled creatively, and that angst caused him to bring things into the real world and pursue these conspiratorial thoughts in a negative way, whereas Mike Diana never really had the conspiratorial thoughts, just a general distrust of systems of power and of social niceties, really when you when you boil it down uh boiled angels is all just kind of like I think it's dumb that people get offended by x and then him just doing x not really out of any malicious intent but just knowing that it will trigger certain people
0: yeah and that's what that's what makes it so absurd really at the end of the day the, the what the thing that makes it most absurd there's plenty of things that make it absurd from an from an ethical and free speech and freedom of expression perspective but the idea that like what you're saying is exactly right that's what everybody does do i do i really like these comics not really i they don't really appeal to me artistically and the the subject matter is incredibly over the top grotesque and it's, I'm not offended by it, but it's just, it's just not my cup of tea. I just don't like, I'm, I don't enjoy like reading comics about like babies getting raped to death or whatever. That's just not, that's not my thing. Um, but the, like what you're saying is exactly true. Whatever, whatever your thoughts about these comics are, the central function of them is people think it's not okay to say and do these things. I don't like the idea of being told that I can and can't do things that aren't hurting anybody ultimately. So the sole function of this comic is just just say and depict things that society deems as like unacceptable. Like that's literally all it is. There's no meaning behind any of it other than just like I am pushing a boundary of communication and expression.
1: And I think there's also some, I was tormented as a kid by these religious institutions. And so I'm, the, my way of rebelling against that is drawing Jesus with dicks coming out of his head or whatever.
0: Like, you know, it's not like they're not about. But even that, even that's the same thing. It's, the, it's just like, it, it's It's every, every, maybe not to this degree, obviously, but every kid who is creative and uh, express themselves through making things whether it was art, drawing or otherwise did this where you just like you you make something specifically because you're like people said i that you're not supposed to do this or say this and i don't like these types of people and so i'm going to just make this thing that's just like specifically designed to just make them go oh like that's 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 all you're doing is you're just trying to make people go oh yeah and that's kind of why i don't really dig them all that much
1: you know like as a as a younger person when all i wanted to do was make somebody go oh i liked them more and now i've kind of matured past that and i'm kind of like oh yeah i get it i see what you're doing it's not it's not really for me but you know i respect it and it shouldn't be fucking criminal
0: yeah yeah 100 percent. uh yeah, I and yeah, I just I and I and I can't I just can't get past that idea. That that's the the thing that's just most surreal to me is just all the like watching all those pearl clutching news clips from back in the time of these mom groups and religious organizations just like crying and screaming and talking about how horrific they are and it's the same people who are, just, who are just like, oh, the fucking woke mob is canceling people for just like s- saying their opinion or whatever. And it's like, you, you've been doing this shit for f- hundreds of years. And not only are you like, like the worst that's going to happen when somebody gets canceled is like they're going to lose their job, which is like not great. You, it's not great to lose your job. That's not a good thing to happen to somebody. But it's not like going to prison like you, like it was frequently done to people for arbitrary re- religious reasons or just like a matter of public controversy. Uh, yeah, I it's the other thing
1: that's kind of really strange to me about it too is how it's just completely like evaporated from the comics history landscape. You know, like it's it's a fascinating story, it's one of the few national news stories that features comics in a m- meaningful way. It's a story that is literally about the art of the medium, not just like, oh, would be cartoonist murders someone with a car by accident and goes to prison or, you know, former Marvel or DC writer found with child porn on their computer goes to jail like those are the normal like comics news stories. (laughs) And this is an actual news story about comics at a pivotal point in U.S. history that just feels completely, like, neglected culturally. Like, I don't, I don't feel like I ever hear anybody talk about Diana, Mike Diana, and I never see him at conventions, and I never see, like, panels about him. You know, obviously, the Frank Hanelotter documentary is awesome, and I wish more people watched it, uh, but it's still, like, it just is very strange to me that he's not a bigger piece of comics history.
0: Yeah, it's it's truly the the platonic ideal of the Deep Cuts concept of like a story that you can't believe you've never heard of. There are many episodes we do that are like that. There are many episodes we do that aren't necessarily like that. They're interesting stories or they're crazy stories, but like maybe they're a little bit w- more well-known. Maybe they're very well-known and it's just our take on them. But this is like the, the ultimate ideal of it, of just like how is this not common knowledge and it, not even not even in comics but like a person was put in prison for drawing a, a comic Th- that's that's like that's fucking huge that's not even the craziest thing to me
1: honestly the the having your freedoms usurped and going to prison for making something that's offensive is insane and incomprehensible but being legally prohibited from drawing and having people just like able to come into your home and be like, what you drawing? Fuck you. You're going back to jail. That is
0: crazy pants to me. And that actually happens a lot with like computer crimes. Like people will get like legally banned from using computers. But even that like makes a little bit more sense because it's like, you're being banned from accessing information and like utilizing the computer to scam people or hack into systems and things like that. But this is literally just like you are not able you are not legally allowed to take this pen and like doodle little cartoon characters because we think that they're because we think they're offensive.
1: Unreal. Um Spandrew, you got any you got any closing thoughts other than what we've been yakking about for the last twenty minutes? You got any you got any final send offs?
0: Yeah, I kind of I mean I, I almost I feel like the Mike Diana boiled angel story is almost like it's almost like the return of the Jedi to the the air pirates story where throughout the 70s into the early 80s. There's this there's this big legal and philosophical win for freedom of expression, specifically in comics, but in but in general as well, where Dan O'Neill spends a decade like personally sacrificing himself at the altar of the american legal system to win everybody the right to express themselves from a copyright perspective and wins and not not directly as a result of the court case but certainly i think helped by it we get the the copyright act of 1976 which is essentially just codifying parody and satire and uh free fair use we get this big triumphant, epic win for freedom of expression. And then you have this downturn in the 90s where this is just an open and shut case. Oh, you, and, and it's, it's arguably, not even arguably, it's, it's literally way in more insane than, than what, uh, Dan O'Neill did that they were, that they were like prosecuting it. You and Andrew talked about this in the Air Pirates episode that like, it, it's great that, this happened and it's a net positive and a net win for everybody. But like he was just literally taking characters and like using them without permission. Like there was some grounds for suing him and ultimately criminally charging him. I'm glad that he beat that, but like there was some grounds, like it's not insane to me that he got taken to court, but this case, which is like unfathomable to me that, you would prosecute somebody on this and then he goes in and then they're just like 90 minutes you're fucked you're going to jail like that's insane not only is that insane but it just goes to show that like how much more people care about their own like sort of emotional reaction and their own like personal experience with something offending them than they care about like actual quantifiable logistics people care so much more About if something just like makes them feel bad, than they do about like the actual ethical philosophy of parody and satire, and whether or not it was stealing for Dan O'Neill to use Mickey Mouse and like have him like go down on Minnie. People care that much more about like, oh, this thing is just, it makes me feel weird. It's American culture and the human condition in its worst form, just like wrapped up and and, like, presented in its purest essence. I'm Dave Baker. And I'm Spandrew
1: Spice. This has been Deep Cuts. If you'd like to find me on the internet, you can do so at heydavebaker.com. Or if you'd like to pick up my new book, Forest Hills Bootleg Society, you can pick that up wherever books are sold. Spandrew, where can people find you on the internet?
0: You can find me... (laughs) Angel's head and... (laughs) onto it and all over its face and then my hole and until a whole the angel's head and my side and just pours and all over its face. And uh, you can't find me on social media, but if you want to pay your respects to the dear beloved Papa Pricey and buy some comics that are not heavily featuring violent sexual torture, um, but rather just like a robot detective solving crimes. Um, you can go to his website, da and get yourself a copy of deadbolt AI private. Eye. you can also follow us on social media, go to Facebook deep cuts podcast. You can follow our Facebook group where we talk about the show, make memes deep Cuts podcast, Facebook group. You can join our discord server, bitly.com slash deep cuts discord, where we talk about the show, make memes, and uh discuss other things and also we have like games now that we play so we have a couple of community games where pe- listeners can come in and just like hang out and play games together it's pretty cool just implemented a couple days ago and people in the sor- server are hanging out and playing games and talking and it's kind of a cool vibe uh you can follow us on on instagram at DeepCutsPod. pod you can go to our website deepcutspod.com you can click on the shop you can get t-shirts and hats with deep cuts graphics on them you can get our mystery treehouse junior sleuth shoulder patch and you officially cannot get our simple code nine track tape comic rock opera about napster and also five page full color comic starring andrew dave hillsmer and zero we're we're sold out we got no more for the foreseeable future. If you didn't buy one, you fucked up. There was there was a million dollars in each one and you fucked up and you didn't buy one and now they're sold out.